The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Right? All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. And as Will said, this is going to be an unscheduled podcast, so no promises about when we release episodes, how often we release episodes, but basically, you know, we'll record whenever we have something uh, interesting to say, interesting to us, maybe not interesting to everybody else. So Will, I thought we would talk about a topic I think that you're a little bit familiar with, the shadow docket. Great term. You've heard of that, right? I've heard of that. Okay. So this is something that has gotten say a tremendous amount of attention. It's been building up, but I feel like in the last two or three years, it's really kind of gone to a fever pitch. People are talking about the Supreme Court shadow docket. And we're going to talk about that, but actually I think at the outset, it would be really helpful just to try to figure out what that means. And now this is a term you first created in a 2013 article. And since then, a lot of people have taken it and run with it. But my sense is that maybe sometimes people use it to refer to slightly different things. I want to get your definition of what the Supreme Court shadow docket is out on the table. Sure. So the shadow docket is everything that's not the ordinary merits docket at the Supreme Court. So the ordinary merits docket being the cases that everybody spends the most time paying attention to. You know, you file a cert petition, you grant cert, they're orally argued at some point during the court's term, and then they get an opinion sometime between October and June. That's like the ordinary docket. The shadow docket is just a catch-all term for Everything else, everything that literally everything else, that. literally okay. everything else from injunctions to opinions respecting orders to dissents from the denial of cert to everything like that. I will say my original title was paying attention to the orders list. So, you know, what <laughs> Supreme Court people would call the orders list is kind of the, the core, but the Supreme Court actually has multiple orders lists. It's a very good you didn't call it that because I think the article would have had less influence and then maybe somebody else would have written an article about the shadow docket or you know the some other clever phrase and then that would be getting repeated all the time my good friend and colleague justin driver came to my office when i gave a draft of this article and said will this is a fine article but you cannot call it paying attention to the orders list that is a terrible title you need to come up with something you know and then we brainstormed and ended up in the shadow docket I think that was extremely good academic advice. I hope you're giving him some intellectual royalties on your dividends from this this article, such as they are. Okay, so basically it's everything, everything that isn't opinions after oral argument. And so you said it's dissents from denial of cert. That's interesting. I mean, would you say the cert process generally is part of the shadow docket or or just just when people write separately about what's going on in the cert process. Well, I think it's anything out of, again, anything out of the ordinary in the cert process. So like a summary reversal uh, is technically a cert petition, right? You get a cert petition and then rather than granting it the normal way, you like grant and reverse all at once. That's part of the shadow docket. Okay. And so looking back at your original article published in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty, it's a forward, the Supreme Court shadow docket. You defined it in the abstract, at least, as a range of orders and summary decisions that defy the court's normal procedural regularity. Yeah. And so that's that's part of it too. Sort of doing something a little a little different than the process that you laid out. And that actually raises a question for me before we get too deep into this. Is is there a point at which something stops being the shadow docket if the court does it a lot? <laughs> yes. I mean obviously in a sense the the point is to capture this like sense of stuff we're not paying attention to that we don't quite have the normal rules for. You know, the more 
the less shadow it becomes, the less it's part of the shadow docket. Okay, well, so, so now, now I'm wondering, is there a shadow docket anymore? By identifying this idea, now you've destroyed it. Because it, we, we say the shadow docket, this is not really in the shadows, right? People are talking about it. There's articles. It's in, I, you know, I did a Google search. There's tons of popular press articles. We had a, the House Judiciary Committee had a hearing about paying attention to the shadow docket. And so at a certain point, like this stuff is getting a lot of scrutiny. And so is it important that it is the idea of it being in the shadows really kind of important? Or do you think there's that maybe it's just now it's the it's the weird docket or it's the un, non-procedural regularity docket? I mean, look, we, we don't have to get too hung up on like labels. We can call it the penumbra docket now if we want. But I think it still has like the key feature is still. So for things like the, that we're paying attention to these, you know, injunctions and stays pending appeal, it's still the case that like. Nobody quite knows what cases are on that docket, like what, what cases the court's going to do something in. We don't know when the court's going to rule on them. And we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So I think you could imagine a world mm. where the court got, where the court had an official summary reversal docket and it like takes a cert petition, puts it on the summary reversal docket. You know, then the next two months you're going to get a summary reversal. And then they like have a separate set of rules for summary reversals that they communicate to us. I could imagine us getting there. We're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, definitely not there. And I think there's still just a lot of stuff that they do that we don't expect. You know, these um, one thing that people note about the shadow docket is some of these orders are released like at, you know, 10 p.m. on Friday night when some of the Supreme Court reporters are, are maybe not as available. That may, that may not be intentional. It may just be that's when these things are ready. But that is right. something that, you know, we just don't know. All of a sudden we get one of these and you're like, oh, wow. Right. And again, for opinions, they tell us. They're like, next Monday, we're going to have opinions or yeah. whatever. They don't tell us which ones, which is a lot of people complain about. They say, why can't they just say, you know, we're getting the ACA opinion next week? Yeah. But still, like, imagine if just like at 2 a.m., like randomly, as soon as, you know, Justice Thomas was done with his concurrence, like the ACA opinion just like went up on the website. <laughs> that would be different. Maybe that'd be better because then right now, like for every non-argument session, sort of the end of the year, everybody's there kind of hitting refresh, you know, for the, you kind of waste your whole morning and then you get two patent decisions, and then uh, you've wasted your morning for no no good reason. But I digress. And so uh, I think that there's sort of some normative content here, you, you know, this idea that they're not following procedural regularity. There's things that we might think are troubling about that. And I want to get into that, but I think maybe we should just talk about what's been happening on the shadow docket and then kind of step back sort of later on. Yeah. And do a little bit of evaluation. And, you know, you wrote this article 2013. There's been, I think, a fair amount that's happened in Supreme Court world since then and in shadow docker world since then. We've had, you know, two changes of, of administration. We've had significant changes of personnel on the court. And we have, at least according to some, changes in behavior by the court yeah. and how it handles the shadow docket. And I want to see if we think that's true. And so I don't think we can really recap everything that's happened in the last eight years. <laughs> Please don't. But maybe we should just talk about like, yeah, some of the stuff that's happened. Should we talk about the COVID cases? Yeah, yeah, that's big, right? That's something that's quite controversial, high profile. Let's talk about those. So where should we start there? I was thinking the all the COVID church cases. One of the most important things that's happened in the shadow docket is in a series of I've lost track of how many decisions, right? The Supreme Court has ruled over and over again in different directions, you know, changing back and forth about how lockdown, shutdown orders can affect religious services. And in the process, maybe made quite a bit of law about like the legal status of the Supreme Court's decision in Jacobson versus Massachusetts about, you know, deference during public health, 
about the legal status of employment versus Smith, which is like a major free exercise precedent that the court might be kind of reinterpreting on the shadow docket. And the, you know, the oversimplified story being at the beginning of the pandemic and before the most recent appointee to the court, uh, the court seemed to adopt a somewhat deferential rule. And yeah. by the end of the pandemic and with new appointees in the court, the court seemed to be quite skeptical of the ability of a lockdown order to seriously restrict. And, and that does seem like that's a function of kind of pushing Chief Justice Roberts out of the median spot, because one of the one of the important early decisions was South Bay uh, United Pentecostal Church uh, v. Newsom for a case out of California, where the Chief Justice, um, you know, wrote uh, a concurrence to why he were he was denying an application for injunctive relief there and kind of explained his views. Uh, and then it seems like with the change in personnel, Justice Barrett kind of replaces Justice Ginsburg, that kind of shifts the balance of power on the court. And the the remaining, you know, five more conservative justices seem more kind of religious, pro-religious liberty in this in this context as in another context, of course. Yeah, I, th- I think that's all right. Although I do think there's also some even among, I mean, even the Chief Justice's votes, I think, shift a little bit over time. And I think there is also just a sense of the court getting its feet under it here, like at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> You know, there's more a sense of like we don't know what's going on and we have to let local governments you know try to solve this and by the end as everybody has stronger views some informed some not about like what causes covid to spread uh yeah well but also not just that i mean the, yeah. the facts the the mere fact of the length changes it too it's you might say this is this is okay at the beginning but like you can't do this forever that's sort of like and that's sort of what gorsuch's uh justice yeah. gorsuch's opinion is I think it was I, I think it was in the Roman Catholic diocese uh, opinion where he says, you know, the Constitution doesn't let us shelter in place, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that could be relevant too. Yeah, exactly. But but I think so. So, I mean, so there's a bunch of these cases. They've been controversial. They've been moving over time. But I think part of what's uh, interesting and controversial is that you know, right now the court has on the regular docket a case of whether to overturn. It's religious liberty precedent, employment division versus Smith, which says, you know, in general, you can't claim a religious exemption from a neutral order. And people argue what, what it means for them to be neutral. And the court is arguing about these things and reaching controversial decisions about what that principle means, like in five decisions that have been, you know, briefed and briefed and decided while one merits case is pending. Yeah. And this is this is an interesting development, which is which is, you know, the fact that they're actually writing these lengthy opinions, which they often don't do. They often just, you know, shows up on the orders list or miscellaneous order. I mean, one thing I was I was trying to do in preparing for this was just get a handle on, you know, everything that's kind of happened in the last year or so. And I, I couldn't really, because it was like, you just have to look at it. You go to the orders list and there's a bunch of PDFs that say miscellaneous order and they don't tell you anything. And so it's actually quite hard uh, to even know uh, what you know? What they were doing? You have to look up the docket number. But here, you know, they're writing some some pretty lengthy opinions. And do you think that they would have handled these? Put aside the merits. Put aside the merits. Do you think that they would have handled these the same way in terms of writing these opinions if this was 10, 20 years ago? Or do you think this is a change in practice? I think this is a change. I mean, so I think the the year I was writing about it, you know, there was the there were all these cases about same sex marriage, which used to mm-hmm. be a big uh, mm-hmm. issue. Uh, and you know, they were doing weird stuff. They would like stay some of the lower court decisions and suddenly unstay them. And like, you know, judges were trying to figure out like, is the court signaling which way they're going to go, you know, before we knew that. And the, they wrote nothing. It was just like, I think occasionally justice Thomas let loose a short dissent, but the court said nothing, you know, 
and even that. And then sometimes Justice Ginsburg gave public remarks where she said, here's what what I was thinking. If you were lucky, Justice Ginsburg would would mouth off to a reporter uh, and you would get a little bit of information. So I do think I do think they're writing more. I think they seem to be aware people are paying more attention to these and trying to get the signals. They're trying to give more signals. And so, I mean, and do you think maybe that's because of criticism from folks like you and, you know, the fact that Congress is is maybe paying attention and voicing concerns about this or it's some other is it that the court is more polarized um, or at least arguably seen as more polarized i mean you know where do you think that's coming from uh yeah i mean i don't know i i'm not going to take any credit for it i do think they're aware they're increasingly aware that people are trying to trying to get the message of whatever they're doing with these orders and so they're trying to give people the message uh whether that's a matter of criticism or just you know they're trying to give people a sense of what it wants. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so maybe we could say, you know, we could say a couple things. We could say, this is good. Uh, it's good that they're telling us what they think rather than just giving us a series of, you know, petitioner wins, respondent loses, respondent wins, you know, those kind of outcomes. Uh, on the other hand, it poses other risks, which are related to some of the things you mentioned that the, these are opinions that are being issued without full briefing. I mean, the um, briefing is, just stay applications, right? Or, or yeah. injunction applications, which are short, they're drafted on very short timelines. I think it's quite rare to have any amicus filings at that stage. You'd have to be acting very quickly. That's gotten um, more common though. So the Beckett Fund yeah. is, you know, they're on it, but yes, it's Yeah, it's not but you need, you need resources, you need lawyers that can do it quickly and you need to even know that this is happening, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, and no oral argument. Obviously, and so it does seem like, you know, these opinions and these opinions are are precedential, right? That's the thing that's always well, I that's thought was interesting. I said that's confusing whether they're precedential. Probably. Well, it, it, yeah, but my sense, I guess, my sense is that Supreme Court opinions deciding things on the merits like are precedential. Like I didn't think that the Supreme Court issued like it doesn't really issue unpublished non precedential opinions, right? It, that's right. That's so, right. So, so like, in, I mean, maybe. The, how much it's presidential we can debate, but it's like this in theory makes some law, right? And at the very least, like lower courts are going to read it and think, oh gosh, we got to we gotta do what they're telling us to do. And so, you know, they could screw things up, right? Yeah, like the thing you noted, did they maybe over, overrule right. Employment Division versus Smith without clearly telling us in Tandon where there was a ban on indoor gatherings at homes and then the court says, well... But you're letting other gatherings happen other places. And so it's not basically it's not a neutral rule, which I found I think a lot of people found quite controversial um, yeah. and, and strained. I, I didn't find that totally persuasive, although, you know, some friends of mine have made arguments to me. But but that is yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Uh, and potentially problematic. Yeah, exactly. So th- this is, I mean, in, in in religious liberty world, there's long been this sort of question about how do you understand the principle that you don't have to give religions an exemption from neutral rules, but you can't discriminate yeah. against them? Because, you know, going back to like the legal realists, you know, equality is kind of always depends on what's the baseline or what's the comparator. And so the, so the court has been, cover, you know, making some new advances, uh, moving the ball, whether for yeah. better or worse. Although, although, you know, an argument somebody made to me was, well, it's it's not really a neutral rule because if you just think of it at a different level of generality, there's there's rules about stuff you can do with lots of people. And this one basically ends up carving out 
religious stuff because that's the kind of stuff people want to do in their homes, but doesn't carve out, doesn't, doesn't prohibit kind of commercial activity. Right. I didn't totally find that persuasive, but I thought it was the best someone could do to try to explain that to me, at least without, without saying, okay, then we're just overruling Smith, which I think would be quite inappropriate to do in a shadow docket type context. So that's, so that's where I was going to go. So I think, you know, when the court didn't write opinions in these cases, it was easier to say, well, obviously they're not making any new law when they just say, you know, stay granted, stay denied, you know, like they couldn't because they wouldn't say anything as they write more opinions. That's good because now we know more of what's going on, but then they're more tempted to get into sort of like normal opinion writing mode Mm -hmm. where they get to make new law or overrule cases or, you know, I mean, they probably think, like, look, we have five people here who think Smith should be overruled. Why don't we just tell everybody? Yeah. Although even when that's true, don't you usually sort of ask for briefing on that question? Isn't that kind of the normal say, like, okay, now, like, even if it's an argued case, when in, if they, you know, go back to conference, they're like, yeah, I really think we have to overrule this case. Let's let's have some briefing on that, right? Sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, yeah. Maybe not yeah, all the time. Right. But that's, that's, I'll just say the more, you know, the point is, the more they say in these opinions, the less it's clear why they get some sort of, like lesser procedural status Mm. if it's a two sentence order like what do you i mean what do you do with that i mean obviously the parties have to follow it but it's hard to say that creates much law right but if you're going to write a five-page presidential opinion you know then should we do the stuff we normally do before the court writes a five-page presidential opinion yeah and and in some of these you know we just have the two-line order plus concurrences and dissents but in tandem we actually have a procurium right uh and so that's like okay that's, you know, right. gotta, that's and, binding. And my sense is part of what happens is so there they start out trying to avoid making any new law in these in these church COVID cases, uh, but they do have a kind of general approach they want to have happen. Then the lower courts get quite conflicted about what to do with that. Some lower courts think they get the message. Other lower courts get a very different message. So the, the court finds it has to keep deciding these cases over and over. And at some point they get understandably frustrated. And so they decide, all right, fine, <laughs> we'll give you a procuring opinion and tell you what we want. But then we might look and say, well, wow, if that's actually making some new law, did we get there the right way? Yeah. Okay. So a lot more we could talk about with the, the church COVID cases, but there's a lot of other stuff to talk about yeah. too. The one other the one other example of this, uh, some of which happened a couple of years ago, are these death penalty cases mm-hmm. um, like involving... Can you can you execute somebody without letting them have their chaplain, their Buddhist or their imam or their chaplain in the execution chamber with them? And, and the answer is is yes if they're Muslim, no if they're Buddhist, right? Basically, well, or maybe not anymore. I mean, this, this is another one of these. Yeah. Right? This is they did not they ruled against a uh, Muslim prisoner and then in favor of a Buddhist prisoner, and then understandably said, "Whoa, is the rule that you know Muslims <laughs> don't have rights?" And so then. There were like concurrences, and I think they dropped a weird footnote in like a merits case that wasn't really about this issue to try to explain their past behavior. So it's another one of these cases where the court clearly had some thoughts and they were struggling with how to communicate them to us. Um, yeah, and it, it seems like it's 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 moved a little bit. So uh, initially, so first they say it's okay to go ahead with the execution, and that that one was Dunn versus Ray. That was the Muslim prisoner. And then they say, no, not okay to go ahead with the Buddhist prisoner uh, and execute him because you're, you're not, you have a non-neutral rule. You're letting other kinds of uh, religious spiritual advisors into the death chamber, but not Buddhists. And that's Murphy versus Collier. And then we have 
Dunn versus Smith, which which seems to basically say you you just have to let them in, right? That you can't even have a a rule that says no spiritual advisors because of the religious land use and institutionalized persons act. Okay, I knew the I was was hanging me up. Um, yeah, which is which imposes some accommodation, religious accommodation requirements on prisons and some other uh, places where there's federal jurisdiction. And so that's been an interesting saga. And I think one thing we haven't really addressed in talking about that is the the first one, Dunn versus Ray, widely criticized, right? Very, very, you know, maybe I'd say even pilloried. And, you know, some people said um, between Dunn versus Ray and uh, Murphy versus Collier, the Buddhist one, the court kind of maybe heard the criticism. Now, there are some distinctions that can be drawn. I think you have a blog post um, somewhere addressing some of those. Am I, am I making that up? Uh, you're not making that up. Okay, good. You have a lot of blog posts. But but it did seem like at least a possible explanation for what was going on, that that you know part of what was going on, that maybe the court recognized that this was very controversial, got a lot of criticism. Yeah, so it's also possible, honestly, that not all the justices were totally paying attention the first time. I mean, one of the things you don't, I mean, you hope the justices are always all paying attention to everything. But sometimes with something where the justice isn't, you know, in person attending oral argument and conference. Yeah. You don't always know how much did they just get a call from their clerk saying, you know, it's another state application, we should deny it, and how much did yeah. they really like dial in? Well, so and, and I'm not sure which of the two explanations we just went over is less flattering to the court that they're that they're cravenly, you know, following public opinion or they're just not paying attention. They both seem not ideal. But yeah, that's an interesting thing to note, which is that we haven't really put on the table is, you know, we're talking about this specific issue in the death penalty context. But shadow docket stuff is capital cases all the time. Yeah. Right. I don't I don't have a sense exa- at this point of exactly how many executions are taking place in the United States, you know, fewer than I think a decade or two ago for sure. But, you know, when I was clerking, when you were clerking, you know, there was this this death list and you would know, okay, Texas has one scheduled for next Tuesday. And, you know, the clerks would kind of rotate who was on that. Every chambers would have a clerk who's on it. And you'd be there staying late. You know, there would be, and there would always be somebody filing um, last minute motions. And the, you know, clerks are calling the justices at home. Um, sometimes people are writing dissents. More of the time, they're just uh, issuing one sentence orders. Sometimes where they say, you know, Justice Sotomayor would have granted the application or something like that. Sometimes not even that. And so, you know, it is it is possible that this uh, death penalty case, Dunn versus Ray, which a lot of people think was wrongly decided, or at least deserved a lot more consideration than it got, could have slipped through the cracks. You know, people are just like, oh, gosh, another one of these uh, capital cases. Yeah. Uh, and that's troubling. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, but that has to, I mean, maybe it doesn't have to happen in a death case, but that has to happen on the orders list. Mm-hmm. And the court issues thousands of orders. They are not, not every justice is personally reviewing every single one. Allocation of the court's attention is one of the things that the shadow docket is ultimately about. Well, when you say thousands of orders, are you, are you, I mean, they issue thousands of cert denials. Right. Yeah. But, so you can take, I mean, yeah. if you think of that, though, is like there could be a case where they deny cert in something. And then later on, you might ask a justice, why should I deny cert in that case? And they might say, honestly, I didn't even know we denied cert in that case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's, there's the cert pool. I think seven of them are in the cert pool now, right? As far as I know. Uh, Gorsuch and uh, Alito were not, you know, so you've got uh, seven of them, they have clerks, you know, sharing memos about the, the petitions and someone could just write a memo that doesn't, right. doesn't attract anybody's attention. Case doesn't get put by the justices on the discuss list. 
doesn't get discussed at a conference and then it's right. just kind of denied as a matter of course. So yeah, that could, that could absolutely happen. So, so um, and we should talk about this more in a minute, but I have one last thing on this death thing. Mm-hmm, so one last thing mm-hmm. that could be going on. So one thing the court has said in some footnotes and some merits opinions in some occurrences in these opinions is it doesn't want people to file these things at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Like it really, even an otherwise meritorious claim if they feel like it's the day of your execution and you didn't have to file it on the day of your execution, you might lose. Yeah. So I, I do think this is an area where on the one hand, that's a that's actually a very sensible rule as a matter of administration. If you think, look, we, we don't handle these cases very well when you give us like six hours notice and we're all trying to figure out what's going on. On the other hand, they haven't, it's not like there's a Supreme Court rule that says, you know, this is when your claim is timely filed or anything like that so part of what's going on in these cases also seems to be the justices making their own mm-hmm. decisions about whether or not your petition is fast enough without any hard and fast rules yeah and, and i think that is uh really troubling because you know there there clearly are some of these that are just death penalty counsel throwing everything they can against the wall which which i think they should i mean at least right it's arguably their ethical obligation to do so right i mean because they have to be doing everything they can to save their client. Ethically, they're not supposed to say, well, I could file something that has a small chance, but I want to preserve my credibility for the next capital defendant I have. No, they really need to do everything. Uh, and then also, which, which, which kind of makes me a little uh, resentful of Justice Alito complaining about, you know, I think he's used the phrase kind of guerrilla tactics by death penalty counsel. And it's just, you know, what do you want people to do? They're, this is like literally the most... They're trying, they're lawyers who have ethical obligations. They're trying to prevent the worst possible outcome for their clients that any lawyer could ever face. But I get why it's inconvenient for the court. But then also there are things where the claims really don't ripen until right before, right? right. Like some of these, you know, about the religious advisors in the death room, you know, we, that different, that, that, that could be that the, that the prison administrators don't even make a decision until a week before. And then you have to, you have to go through potentially the state courts, the federal courts. And so it might not get to the Supreme Court through no fault of the, uh, right. you know, prisoner. Right. No, and that's, and that's what makes it such a difficult area for the court to then be making these kind of, in a way, like meta decisions also fast in the middle of the night. Like, okay, you know, your spiritual advisor claim was just filed and you knew, you know, seven days ago, but did you really know? And yeah. 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 Um, they don't, I mean, they don't have their, I mean, they, maybe they have the full record. Maybe they don't. I mean, it's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a mess. I, so again, I think to give the court credit, I think they are aware this is not a good system. Like, then they are aware of the incentives. Like, the, it's not that the death penalty lawyers are like doing something wrong; they're responding to the, you know, what the system gives them. But they do not have a good system for dealing with this. Do, but, do you have any thoughts on how that could be fixed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the court ought to probably at this point just write a rule or something. Uh, I mean, I know, there are a lot of ways you could fix it, but if the court has some, you know, has some view about how they like. <laughs> When they'd like these cases to be filed, they could they could make a Supreme Court rule telling people what to do. But I mean, it would have to be a pretty tailored rule because of the the problem we just talked about. That sometimes you might have a legitimate claim that isn't couldn't have been brought sooner right. than two days before or the day of. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get it. As, you could have a rule that says if your claim is brought less than forty eight hours beforehand, you have to have a section in your brief explaining why it's being brought yeah. less than forty eight hours beforehand, and explaining yeah. exactly why it didn't accrue yeah. until you know, or whatever. Yeah. Cause sometimes people are just making new writing opinion, uh, filing petitions that kind of raise an issue that they've already had cert denied on. And you know, the court, you know, the just, the clerks and everything are trying to figure that out. So, 
yeah, I guess it's a different version of this. Like, this is not rocket science, and it doesn't have to be super formal. But if there are things the court thinks are really important in deciding what it should do, it should tell the lawyers what those are and tell the lawyers to spend some time addressing them. Yeah, I mean, although part of the problem maybe is that you know the court doesn't think any one thing about this. There's indeed there's traditionally but, been a pretty wide range of opinion about how to handle these capital cases. Right, and that's I think really tough for litigants to deal with. Yeah, because certainly you know maybe in the the era, you know, a decade ago, around the time when we were clerking, you know, I, I think that it, w- it was not fair to say that the liberal justices would always vote to stay, but they were much more likely to do so. And I think they were much more likely to do so if they thought, you know, maybe there's something here we might want to look at, you know, we can just figure it out later. And I think the conservative justices, you know, think, you know, gosh, we better be really sure this is something that's Certworthy really needs to be heard because they see as, you know, as a real cost that, you know, you're granting a stay that kind of restarts the whole process. It could push everything off by a year. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously in capital cases, some people view it as a, you know, if we accidentally save somebody's life for a while, uh, who we shouldn't have legally, you know, that's a bonus. And other people view that as a minus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the whole uh, system. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a, Procedurally, I think it's kind of a monstrous system. I mean, even putting aside whatever your substantive views are on the death penalty, I mean, you know, these everyone involved. I mean, the uh, the prisoner is is having to just live in the state of often decades of uncertainty, right? As these things get kicked back and forth between different court systems and up and down between different layers of appellate review. You know, the the say the victims' families. I mean, they're in a state of uncertainty. Lawyers are, you know, just scrambling. It's a huge amount of resources that's put into this. And, you know, I, I, th- I think there's an argument that that just there's not really a way to fix that system without really sacrificing some really significant due process type values that we want to respect before we kill somebody. And so that strikes me as a, a reasonably good argument for maybe just not having this uh, penalty. But obviously, there's a lot of disagreement about that. point. Yeah. And to give Justice Alito his due. I mean, we might say a lot of the procedures aren't really serving due process values at this point. They're really just they're really just proving to be useful tools that uh, lawyers can use. Yeah, although I I just I would struggle to figure out figure out the, the the right rule that would kind of carve out the things that we care about. I mean, it seems like maybe the system currently misfires in both directions, right? I mean, it creates a lot of room for not particularly meritorious claims to come up the works. But then there's a bunch of contexts where people have, you know, maybe legitimate claims of actual innocence that are not tied into some procedural violation or uh, something that, you know, was adjudicated a long time ago. And, and that, you know, it seems like maybe it would be it would be better to have that heard by a court. And I wonder, it's one of those areas where you wonder, like, why can't we just make kind of a, a one-for-one trade, you know, uh, get rid of these cases, but then allow these kind of cases to come in. But of course, things don't work that way in law and politics. Yeah, the standard critique is, why can't we just have one really fair trial rather than <laughs> having a bunch of kind of like moderately unfair trials and then trying to catch them later? Um, but but how do we do that, right? I mean, we spend like a million dollars on every every criminal trial. Uh, I mean, do we I spend... Mean, so maybe not a million dollars, but we could, you know, we might have to have more federal standards for... Yeah competent counsel for due process principles you know maybe that federalism plus the current sort of resources and attitudes towards criminal justice don't let us do that um it may not be possible but 
Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting uh, Jim Liebman article about this um, professor at Columbia called I think it's called the overproduction of death, where he just sort of says, you know, we have you know this kind of all this bad lawyering on the front end, and then we try to kind of deal with it uh, on the back end through these tools like habeas. Um, and the incentives on the front end are to kind of seek the death penalty more often than uh, uh, than we should, because in part because of those incentives on the back end. I, I'm skeptical of the idea that we can just have okay, we just have the perfect trial and then everything is right. taken care of. But but yeah, I maybe we could probably do better. Right. The point is more just I mean it's back to where we're coming. The Supreme Court is the ultimate back end. So every yeah. every imperfection in the criminal justice system, you know, eventually. In a capital case, there will be a stay petition at the Supreme Court where the court has to confront that. Yeah, and so you know, I mean, in any given in any given year, I mean, I feel like there's like a hundred of these, you know, or at least a good a number of these. I don't, I haven't gone through and counted them up recently, but I, at least when I was clerking, there were a bunch. Yeah, um, you know, I had to do several clerks had to do several, you know. Okay, but uh, so that, and I think that does. I think this does continue to be kind of a core shadow docket area with emphasis on the shadow part of it, right? Because we don't get, we still don't get much in the way of opinions in these cases. We did get more in the way of opinions in the spiritual advisor cases we were talking about. But for the most part, you know, we, we tend to get super short denials. And another interesting thing about those is uh, you don't even, we don't even know the actual vote. Right. This is I always puzzled by this, which is that, you know, let's say there's five people who vote to deny the emergency relief and four who vote to grant it. But then they sort of say, OK, let us know if you want your dissent noted. Right. 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 Well, so again, if you think of a cert of a cert denial, right, so the court never tells us who voted to grant cert or not. Justices have the option of telling us. So every once in a while, somebody will say, hey, I would have voted to grant this case. But mostly it is, the default is we don't know. And everything else in the shadow docket follows the same default rule. The default rule yeah. is they don't tell us to vote unless the justices feel like it. Yeah. But the more they look like merits cases, the weirder that is. Yeah. And then even in summary reversals, it is possible for there to be a summary reversal. And there's someone who says, I don't agree with the summary reversal, but I'm also not going to write a dissent or sign somebody else's dissent. Right. Because the first step in a summary yeah. reversal is a cert grant. Yeah. Like the, the first stage is we vote to grant this petition in reverse. And since yeah. you could well think... Look, I don't really have a view about the merits. I just didn't want to spend my time on it. Yeah, uh, you, it's you weird though. It's weird because any other time, I feel like any other time where there's like the Supreme Court is is making a decision on the merits, you kind of are able to go through the the breakdown and be like, okay, so these six are here, and and then these three are in the dissent. Like I, I didn't think it was like with an argued case. Let's say there's an argued case, yeah. and they for whatever reason they decide to do a procurium. I mean, do you think there it could be the case that like one person was just like, I'm out, like I don't care. No, the current norm is if it's just a merits case, yeah. you're supposed to say which way you are in the merits. Yeah. But the thing is, all the shadow docket cases are blended merits cases plus procedural yeah. cases. The decision to stay or not stay something is partly about the merits and partly about yeah. these discretionary factors. Yeah. And, and I do think, you know, back in the day, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it was it, there wasn't the same norm. Like you'd get all these unanimous opinions from Justice Marshall, some of which other justices didn't agree with. But the norm was you didn't speak up unless you really. Well, the, and you also had the, the one line uh, dissent or whatever or concurs, you know, whoever concurs in the judgment with no with no explanation. Just I didn't want to give them a majority. So that's a big, uh, a big part of it. And then there's this other big 
you know, lurking issue we haven't really talked about, which is maybe one of the things that's gotten the most attention and Professor Steve Vladek of University of Texas School of Law has drawn attention to, which is the, the Solicitor General's role, and in particular, the Trump administration's Solicitor General's role in shadow docket stuff. You know, the Trump DOJ went to the court and asked for extraordinary relief a, a lot. lot more than prior ever. administrations. And they got it sometimes, they didn't get it sometimes. You know, I think that they got it more than they didn't. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I was looking, I think, I think I found Steve's final update, although I might've missed one where there are a total, uh, there were a total of 40 applications for stays or to vacate stays during the Trump administration by, um, the Solicitor General's office, which is way more, right. Um, than there had been by solicitors general in prior, uh, administrations, both democratic and Republican. And, and so that's, that's true as a factual matter, but then we have a question about what do we take from that? And I think a lot of people, Steve has argued, have argued this is, this is troubling. The court's being very aggressive, um, but there's other things as well that, that explain it. I was wondering, you know, as, as Mr. Shadow Docket, what, what is your view about all that? I mean, I don't, I guess, I don't think it's that troubling in the sense that, you know, so what happened? A bunch of lower courts issued a bunch of decisions that the Supreme Court didn't agree with. The Trump administration knew the Supreme Court would not agree with them. And so they asked the Supreme Court to fix them. And that's, you know, in a way that's totally understandable. And it's given the relative speed with which, uh, you know, new conservatives are appointed to the court, the, you know, just given sort of the dynamics of the court, the lower courts, and the administration, like that's sort of what you'd expect. And and so, but what do you think? I mean, so do you think the thing that changed is that lower courts were just in the Trump period were just veering kind of wildly and doing a bunch of stuff that the Supreme Court wouldn't like when that wasn't true. That wasn't true sort of, let's say, during the Bush administration. Uh, less, so, yeah, so two things, I guess. So I do think there's just there was a gap between the Supreme Court and the lower courts. And of course, if you like the Supreme Court, you would say the lower courts were doing all these crazy nationwide injunctions. And if you don't like the Supreme Court, you would say the Supreme Court took a hard turn to the right and, you know, was suddenly aggressively moving the law. Um, we can get into the merits of particular cases, but but either way, just there was a growing gap. But then I do think there's this like snowball dynamic. So I think previously the SG's office sort of thought it had to save their powder for extraordinary cases. Like they can't go to the court too often. And I think they discovered that when they went to the court and asked for extraordinary relief, most of the time the court agreed. Hmm. So they got the message that it was fine to go to the court. Like if the court was upset about it and didn't want them to, they could always start denying them. But they didn't do it. Yeah, and even when they did deny, they often would get a a few votes in a dissent, sort of saying they would have would have granted it. But yeah, uh, there is that nationwide injunction point you just mentioned, which is that you know, and I don't I don't know if I've seen kind of like true empirics on this. I mean, certainly seems observationally true that that is uh, maybe a bigger thing that's that's happened in the last all i think steve says and i assume he's right about this that even if you drop out all the nationwide injunction cases the trump uh, administration still went for extraordinary yeah. much more than anybody else so it's yeah. not it's not just that although i do think that can kind of put the court in a mood the same way that like they have a bunch of edpa summary reversals and they also have a bunch of habeas summary reversals that don't involve edpa because they've just gotten in the habit of, of uh, looking anytime anybody gets a rid of habeas <laughs> corpus to make sure it's to make sure it's okay. Yeah. Um, I, last thing is, of course, the SG has a client, right? The SG ultimately does have to respond to the White House, and I assume that. Yeah, although know, the White House is not the client, right? The client is the United States. 
Uh, yes, you're right. The SG has the client of the United States, and that client uh, occupies the person of the president of the United States, for yeah. better or worse. And when the you know when people in the White House are saying you need to seek extraordinary relief about this, and look, the court will probably give it to you. It's harder to say no, we shouldn't unless you got a good reason. Yeah, because it's you know not even you can't even necessarily make an institutional credibility type argument because if they're giving it to you, it don't seem to be hurting your institutional credibility. But um, you know what about this? I mean, there is this idea uh, that's always I thought was fairly important that to get this kind of extraordinary, you know, what we call extraordinary relief, to get an injunction or a stay. You had to show, you know, not just that the lower court was wrong, but you had to show this possibility of irreparable injury. And then one thing that that Steve says is basically that the, the court majority seems to now think you kind of automatically have irreparable injury every, every time kind of a federal program or federal law is enjoined. Does that, yeah. does that seem descriptively accurate? Uh, I think so. I think actually, so I remember this, uh, when I wrote the Shadow Docket article, that was already, that was something that Chief Justice Rehnquist and Chief Justice Roberts had said in opinions is that there is automatically irreparable injury when the government can't enforce its laws. And then there was a couple years later, there was an opinion where it appeared to be the case that the majority had endorsed that view, hmm. but it was a little bit ambiguous. I mean, this is another one of these examples of, of the shadow docket problem. So I believe it is the case that that is just black letter law now, that when the state uh, can't do something, that's irreparable injury. But it's hard to tell for sure. And do you think do you think that's a good rule? Does that do you like that? Uh, I mean, because uh, I I don't think that we do they. I mean, they don't. I don't think that they strictly follow that in stays and injunctions for state court rulings, right? Uh, I I believe the same thing comes up in the state court. Context. Yeah, but I mean, but the point is, they're not going out and fixing every kind of. I don't think they fix every erroneous ruling where or every potentially erroneous ruling where some state law gets enjoined, right? There's they could, but there's a lot I, yeah, of stuff like think, that. I think they do on it. So Justice Thomas takes the view that they should, I believe. And I believe they do think the state automatically satisfies the irreparable injury factor, even in state. Even okay, in state fair cases. enough. I mean, on the, so look, on the one hand, I don't love the rule because in general, asymmetric rules that give the government like extra power in litigation when it's already the big guy kind of seem like a bad idea to me. On the other hand, the injury when thinking about the government is so abstract that it's hard it's hard to like decide what really counts as an irreparable injury so i have some yeah. sympathy for the view that i mean is this a stupid rule i mean this is this is this is going back to the division between law and equity um hundreds of years ago and when could you go to the chancellor and you know when did you have the court, court of law i mean do you do you do you think that these distinctions are are good ones to to follow in our legal system uh yeah my uh my friend and co-author Sam Bray will disown me if I say anything uh, bad about the principles of equity. Uh, I, I guess I actually, I think the rule is a good one though. Like still, right. The question is why should the Supreme court like take time out of its day, time out of its regular cases to like give this case privileged attention, you know, you need to do yeah. so right now. Cause if you don't, something bad is going to happen is actually a good answer to that question. Yeah. But but they don't do that in other contexts, right? Like, so like if, if someone, if, if they, if they see a, a, a cert petition and there's somebody who's like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison and they see it and they think this is a really stupid legal error by stupid mistake by the, you know, Alabama court of appeals or whatever. Um, yeah. Not to pick on Alabama, but I'm going to pick on Alabama. They're still going to deny that, right? Unless it's like, you know, you've split and, you know, you know, show that this is some important issue that's going to recur. They're just going to say. You know, got better things 
to do. Um, and so, yes, I mean, okay. that's not, I'm, 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 I'm not talking about the stay injunction context at this point, but I just, it, it does, I do wonder, you know, why we're so concerned about fixing some of these, but not others. This is the fundamental problem with the shadow docket is that a huge amount of it is for error correction. And everybody believes the court should do some kind of error correction. There's something like really bad and the court could stop it and legally wrong and the court should stop it. But then once we go down that road, there are all these heuristics and biases for like what kinds of errors you want to correct that we don't deal with in a fair or systematic way. We're going to wrap up that shadow docket discussion on a future episode. So stay tuned for that. So Dan, you've been ragging on Justice Alito a lot. And I feel like we should talk about one of his most important contributions to federal jurisdiction. What could you possibly be referring to, Will? Uh, so Justice Alito has these opinions, including one recently in an original jurisdiction case called Texas versus California, where he has a critique of the way the court handles its original jurisdiction docket. Do you know about this? Oh, yeah. So so this is this is something that was not really on my radar that they were doing this, but I guess the Supreme Court has, has the Constitution says it has original jurisdiction over suits between states, right? And then apparently the court is just like, if they get one of these suits that they don't like, they just sort of say, you can't even file the complaint. Is that basically what happens? That's exactly right. They've basically invented, without any statutory authorization, a cert process for their original jurisdiction cases that are supposed to be mandatory. So that it's, the Supreme Court actually has original jurisdiction in a huge range of cases. In theory, not just suits between states, but suits involving even one state as a party. And... A long time ago, they said, well, look, we don't have to take all these cases. If you could file it in lower court, you know, we'll just like abstain and let you file it somewhere else. And so they started doing that. And then they started getting cases between two states that can't be filed anywhere else. Like they have to go to the Supreme Court or nowhere. And they just started doing the same thing and saying, you know, we'll just decide whether we want to let you file the case. Yeah. And I, I read this and I was like, what? Like, why are they doing that? Also, the thing that I was puzzled by is Justice Leto dissents and says, like, we shouldn't do that. Justice Thomas that's, it kind of makes sense that he would agree with that. Like, basically, you know, we don't get to make stuff up. Where are the other conservatives? Are they just, like, think this stuff is so boring? You know, they, I mean, we don't know where they are. So so I think Justice Alito first did this, actually, almost 10 years ago in a case between Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska. Some some number of those states against Colorado trying to, like, enjoin Colorado's legalization of marijuana on the ground. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 That was pretty bad. Created an interstate nuisance. That was the first time. Justice Alito said, wait a minute, like, we can't just deny these cases just because we don't want to hear them, uh, joined by Justice Thomas. And nobody noticed because it appeared on the wrong part of the orders list and, like, <laughs> never appeared in Westlaw. I, and then I, I think I either didn't know about that or come, have completely forgotten about that. Because at least uh, I came to this one, the Texas versus California one, as if it were totally new to me. So I'm glad that you teach Fed courts and you, that you were a savvy court watcher, so you remember that one. He's done this now four or five times. And it even sort of awkwardly showed up in the... Texas original jurisdiction case about the 2000 the, the election the Trump election where they tried to file an original jurisdiction case and you know the court denied it but Justice Alito and Justice Thomas had to write this like awkward thing saying which by the way is kind of shadow duckety right because they yeah. they denied it didn't really give us much in the way of explanation at all exactly um, Justice Alito has had a be in his bonnet about this for a long time and Justice Thomas has agreed and I think I ju- just genuinely don't know you know the other justices could think this is settled by precedent and I you know, need to think more about it before I know that it's wrong. I do worry. It's just that, like, look, nobody in the court likes the original jurisdiction cases. They're not interesting. They're not very good at them. 
and they could be worried that with an increasing number of state SGs all looking for the limelight and our partisan cred, if they say what is clearly true, that they have to take these cases, like God only knows what the states are going to make them do. Can't um, they just like decide them on the merits in some way? Can they just say like dismissed or, you know, like not for, you know, don't like, you know, just, just you know, summary judgment or something. Yes. I mean, that's not, I think what they could do and should do is, you know, create a procedure for dealing with these cases. It's just right now, the main procedure they have is sort of like the one they use for interstate water cases where they appoint some special master and mm. like look at it every 10 years and, you know, kind of defer. And I also think a lot of these cases are requests for equitable relief. They're requests for like injunctions or things where the court could say, you know, we're exercising discretion to just decide that there's no relief. The one thing they, they can't do is just like what they do, <laughs> which yeah. is just decide not to not to allow the complaint to be filed yeah and yet it seems like everybody else is just gonna say look we don't want to deal with these so yeah well one of the hardest things to do right is to convince the supreme court that it should not have as much discretion as it currently thinks (laughs) it has yeah they they value their discretion uh and uh, and sometimes they take it even when they're not supposed to i I, I, I read an interesting article. I don't know if this is online yet by uh, Ben Johnson at Penn State. It's forthcoming in Columbia, which basically says, have you seen this? The court, uh, yeah, the court, cert was, certiorari was not actually supposed to be this uh, power to kind of just decide discrete questions from cases. It actually was supposed to involve kind of like hearing the whole case as an appeal, uh, like yes. the way that you hear an appeal. It goes through the history and goes through kind of stuff the, the justices said to Congress I had never, I had never thought about this. Was, I thought it was kind of pretty persuasive. Yeah, I, I think I'm not 100 sure if I agree with it, but it's really good and really thought provoking. And it's just a general. There's a great sort of quasi historical, quasi Fed courts research agenda. This is part of to sort of understand better cert because it is. It came out of this like political moment where you know the Supreme Court went to Congress and convinced them to radically change the nature of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. And I've heard these other stories that I never tracked down that. I heard a story that Chief Justice, whoever it was, Taft, promised the Congress that they would always have the rule of four as part of, like, if you give us mm. a cert petition, we mm-hmm. promise that that we will never require a majority to grant cert, we'll always allow a minority to grant cert, but that's not written in the statute. So is that, like, you know, though in some way binding, were there other principles that are part of that understanding? You know, especially given how much, how important and how discretionary the cert process has become. I think we're looking more carefully about, like, whether any kind of rules or principles there is really important. Yeah. I can see the argument for having some amount of discretion, but I think that there are there are problems with it. And, you know, one thing that I worry about is the idea of justices sort of looking at the cases with kind of a, a real kind of ideological agenda rather than having sort of more neutral criteria. And it may, it may be in part because that can kind of accelerate the ideological movement of the law in any one direction or another. But there maybe are some forces that push against that. Yeah, also part, and part of why I worry about it is I think you have justices, we have a pretty strong norm. Again, we could argue whether the justices always stick to it. They're not supposed to bring like partisan considerations into the like consideration of the merits. Yeah. Some of us think that some justices do that when they're not supposed to, but they all like no, they all agree they're not supposed to do that. And it's not even clear totally whether that's true at the cert process. Like it kind of seems yeah. like there are no rules. Yeah. So you know and it's especially weird and troublesome though if you have a have an idea that like you know once you grant cert you're going to be stuck <laughs> with the merits yeah. regardless of whether you like it or not therefore you can decide not to grant cert and indulge your partisan preferences there 
Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's, if, if that's a result of the fact that they don't have to give reasons. I mean, this is an interesting thing I was thinking about. I was, I was yesterday, just for unrelated reasons, I was reading this article by Fred Schauer about, about giving reasons in law and why do we, why do we, why do we require reasons sometimes and not other times? Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's really, it is really kind of puzzling and there's not kind of obvious answers. Why do we have to have a detailed opinion kind of explaining why one person wins, one person loses and merits case, but then we let them do whatever they want and not even tell us why insert. And there's lots of other questions you can ask like that throughout the law. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, and I, you know, Fred Schauer does make this point in this article, right? That giving reasons is implicitly a requirement that you should be treating like cases alike, or at least that sort of your decision in this case has some implication for how you deal with some other kind of case, uh, which seems right to me. And then part of the struggle is how generalizable do we want that to be? Yeah. And we have no confidence that that's true at the cert stage. Right. And and we don't want, I mean, here's the thing is though, the flip side is we don't want it to be too true at the cert stage because we know the justices don't pay attention all the time. Like, so, you know, we don't want it to be the rule that if you denied cert on this issue once, you have to deny cert again, unless you have a good reason, because honestly, like they might just like the decision to deny cert is not that thoughtful. At the same time, we don't want them to use cert as like a tool for, you know, partisan ends. Yeah. Although, I mean, they do, I mean, they kind of pass their virtues. Let's push this off. Let's punt. Let's wait till the country is ready. I mean, that stuff happens all the time, right? I hope not. I mean, it may. Oh, I mean, come on. That seems like it has to be true. And also, like, even some in some cases, like, going back to something we talked about a little earlier, didn't, like, Justice Ginsburg basically say that's what they were doing in all the lower court gay marriage cases? Yeah. They were just like, we weren't ready to do that. You know, we needed some time. So we just kind of pushed those off. Yeah. Doesn't that seem irresponsible to you? Um, it seems... Seems a little troubling. I mean, I think that maybe maybe there can be good and bad reasons for exercising the passive virtues. I don't know. Yeah, this is actually an underappreciated part of that the Bickle book, the least dangerous branch, where he talks about the passive virtues. So if you go back and look at it, he starts. He says, you know, people say the court shouldn't use discretion to like you know duck the merits of various cases, mm-hmm. but they do it in the cert process all the time. And if they can do it in the cert process, why not everywhere else? Mm-hmm. And I've read that recently and sort of had the opposite reaction it's like well i'm trouble with them doing it everywhere else maybe it's time that we took a harder look at the cert process i certainly think that there are lots of reasons to take a harder look at the cert process and just make sure we're comfortable with what they're doing there and in general just given how much power supreme court justices have um i think we should at least be wary of them exercising too much discretion and particularly in, in ways that we don't even know what they're doing and why they're doing it Thanks so much for listening. If you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify or whatever app you're listening on, that would really help. And it particularly helps early on when a show is first released in getting attention for the show. So please do that if you can. I want to say also thank you to the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago for sponsoring this endeavor. I am grateful for that too. 